Sorry, I should have pointed out that the hymn continued on the next page. Thank you for coming. A special thanks to those who have come from surrounding assemblies to encourage us. Um, that is very deeply appreciated by the Christians here, as well as my appreciation to you for your kind exercise. Now, we're going to be focusing tonight uh, on this period of time just here, and in fact, the um, presidency of Dwight Eisenhower, and that was then led up to the um, space race. So thank you for coming. The subject Sunday at noon is, to me, one of the uh, most thrilling on the chart. We'll be looking at Ronald Reagan. We're, we're, we're dealing now with topics that, um, sorry for talking about age, but topics that I lived through. And so it always amazes me to find out how little was reported for some reason in the media about some of the things that we're going to be looking at. So um, tonight and, to, and Sunday, I think, are fascinating topics. And if you can join us, that is at noon on Sunday, and then the children's meeting, God willing, after a dinner at 5.30, the children's meeting to follow. We're going to ask for God's help, shall we pray? Father, we bow in thy presence, and we do so with reverence and with godly fear. We are in the presence of God, and we would not want to forget that this audience, that the speaker and hearer alike, are before the Lord, and that what will happen in this meeting will be heard by thee, and we pray that it will be blessed by thee, and that men and women and boys and girls that are here will respond to the message of the gospel tonight. We thank thee for its power. We thank thee for its ability to meet the deepest needs of the human heart, and we ask for thy blessing on thy word as we read it, and thy blessing on the gospel wherever it may be proclaimed tonight as we give thanks in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Would you turn, please, to the Gospel of John, and we're going to read in John chapter 6. John chapter 6, and verse 66. John 6, and verse 66. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, Will ye also go away? Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life, and we believe and are sure that thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. Now those words, are sure, are the word that we read in 1 Peter the other evening, what Peter here is saying, First John, what Peter here is saying is, we believe and know that thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. He's not saying we know that we believe. We're sure that we believe. He's saying we believe and are sure. So before we go any further, just ask yourself, what made them sure of who he was? And of course, the answer is given to us at the very beginning of this book. Because when one uh, person who had met the Lord Jesus went to bring uh, another man there, the way that he drew him was he said, we have found him of whom Moses and the prophets and the law did write Jesus of Nazareth. So the reason, the way that they knew that Christ was the son of the living God was from the word of God. And as a result of that, they're saying we believe and know. That's how people today have assurance of salvation. They have it because of what God says in his word. We believe and are sure that thou art that Christ, the son of the living God. 
I think it is helpful to understand the mentality of Americans during the era of the Cold War and the space race. This will be something, of course, that is old hat to some of the older people here, but would be something unknown to the younger. Erased from most of our public school history books is the fact that the USSR was not only atheistic, but it was anti-theistic. That is, it not only denied the existence of God, but it warred, it fought against any reference, mention of, or belief in a God. In fact, I think what shocks many of us today is that Lenin and his followers believed that there was a God. They just wanted to fight against that God and destroy him. I know that sounds incredible, but built on the foundation of the repudiation of God, the Soviet system was militant, brutal, and pathologically opposed to religion in general and Christianity in particular. Some astute observers pointed out that communism had all the trappings of an organized religion. I'm not going to go into detail on this, but it had its messiahs and saints. It had its sacred scriptures, Das Kapital, the Communist Manifesto. It had its elect nation, the Soviet Union. It had its temporary millennium, the socialist state that eventually would lead to perfect communism. It had its enemies who were in a state of bondage. That would be you and me, capitalists. It had its own redemption, brought about by the sacrifice of devoted communists. It had its own conversion experience, conversion to the Communist Party. Did you know it had its own songs? Did you know that children sang, quote, if Lenin walks with me? That sound like anything you know? That they sang, I am happy with Lenin. That they sang, Lenin lives in my heart. These are obvious takeoffs from communism's greatest enemy, Christianity. And of course, it had its own sacred tomb. The tomb of Lenin, where in a hermetically sealed, glass-covered coffin, Lenin's body was viewed by the visiting hordes. Communism found its greatest adversary in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lenin ordered 70,000 churches to be destroyed. He wrote in his famous essay, Communism and Religion, quote, we must combat religion. This is the ABC of all materialism and consequently Marxism. The brilliant Alexander Solzhenitsyn, in his book, The Mortal Danger, said this, it is no accident that the Soviet Union has made no effort more concentrated and ferocious in 60 years than its attempt to eradicate Christianity, and yet they have proved incapable of destroying it. Uh, something I did not know about until uh, doing a little research. In 1925, the Soviets actually founded what translated into English would be the LMG, the League of Militant Godless. The League of Militant Godless. In their language, it could also be the, the Union of Belligerent as well as Militant Atheists. Stalin said this organization would fight against God, would storm the heavens, and would convert superstitious citizens into atheists. Now, it, it was a miserable failure, and it was disbanded in 1947, but the whole purpose of it was to mock religion. They had plays where they made fun of religion, they went to schools and they taught atheism and they made fun of religion, and they talked about people who believed in a, uh, an invisible God, that they were, they were mentally ill, and the whole thing was to denigrate Christianity, particularly, and religion in general. Now, in contrast to all of this, America had its vision of a city on a hill, as expressed by Jonathan Winter. 
It had a people chosen and blessed by God in the opinion of many. And in the White House sat President Dwight Eisenhower, a Kansan born October the 4th, 1890. His mother joined the Jehovah Witness cult and tried to raise Dwight and his siblings in that sect. But Dwight's father and the boys left it in a short time, apparently aware of its errors. Please remember that. That will come into play in just a, a few minutes. He was the only U.S. president who was baptized as a Christian while he was in office, 12 days after his inauguration. He became a member of the National Presbyterian Church on Washington's Connecticut Avenue and soon announced that cabinet meetings would begin with a moment of silent prayer. And all this, even though he was not yet saved but was merely a God-fearing reader of the Bible. However, in August of 1955, he invited Billy Graham to his farm in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. After a drive around the battlefield, they came back to the Eisenhower house. In the den, the president paced in front of the fireplace. Billy Graham said he felt very viscerally that something was on the mind of uh, President Eisenhower. And then the president asked him a question. Now, please notice what the president asked him. President Eisenhower did not ask him, how can a person be saved? He did not ask him, how can a person be born again? Remember, please, that his mother had, been, had bought into Russellite teaching, that she was a Jehovah Witness. It is a religion that teaches that only a select few, 144,000 only, can go to heaven. That's according to their teaching. By the way, the man who started that religion, Pastor Russell, he tried to get into an assembly and he sat with the elders, and when he tried to tell them about his so-called conversion, they doubted very sincerely that he was saved, and so uh, he left there and went and started his own religion. This is what the president asked him, the president whose mother was a Jehovah Witness. President Eisenhower said, Billy, do you believe in heaven? Yes, sir, I do. Give me your reasons, please. Billy Graham said, with my New Testament open, I gave the president a guided tour through the scriptures that spoke of the future life. Eisenhower then asked, how can a person know he's going to heaven? Billy Graham said, I explained the gospel to him all over again, as I had on previous occasions. I sensed that he was reinsured by that most misunderstood message that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone and not by anything that we can do for ourselves. By the way, 14 years Later, after this, nearing death at Walter Reed Hospital, at the age of 78, he called Billy Graham and he said, tell me again how I can be sure that my sins are forgiven and that I am going to heaven. Nothing else matters now. Billy Graham said, I took my Bible and showed him that we can go to heaven completely on the basis of the merits of what Christ did on the cross. After we prayed together, Eisenhower said, I am ready. Now, it has been said that within a few months after taking the oath of office, Eisenhower was popularly known as the most religious president in our history. His presidency was described as a crusade for moral and religious goals. Uh, he is the one, by the way, who added the words under God to the Pledge of Allegiance in 1954 and the adoption of In God We Trust as the motto of the United States in 1957. He had Billy Graham and other prominent preachers come to the White House. And he delivered hundreds of messages, both written and oral, to religious organizations. On January 20th, 1953, after Eisenhower was sworn in as president, he said, my friends, before I begin the expression of those thoughts I deem appropriate, I ask that you bow your heads. And there was a murmur among the, the, uh, the media people and others because this had never happened before. 
And the president actually said a prayer that he himself had composed, asking God for help in guiding the country. Now, I want to hurry through this. Um, just are you sensing the difference that in the USSR, we had Khrushchev pounding the desk, yelling, there is no God. And in the United States, we had Eisenhower bowed in prayer in the Oval Office. So notice, please, that that difference was very, very apparent in the astronauts and cosmonauts. Apollo 8 launched December 21st, 1968. It remains to this day the single greatest, longest step into the unknown that any human being. There are ships that have gone farther, of course, but that any human being has ever taken in recorded history. The flight was unprecedented. And as you'll see from your handout, they actually read from the Bible. It was the most spectacular Bible reading in recorded history. In their book, Apollo, The Race to the Moon, historians Charles Murray and Catherine Bly Cox wrote, for many of the people in the Apollo program, Apollo 8 was the most magical flight of all, surpassing even the first landing of Apollo 11. So Frank Borman, who read from Genesis chapter 1, Frank Borman, somebody had pulled him aside and said, now you're going to be up there on Christmas Eve, and we think there are going to be millions of people listening to you, so find something significant to say. So he went to a friend and asked this friend, Cyborgan, a NASA employee, what do you think would be a suitable thing to say? And then Cyborgan went to a former UPI reporter, Joe Layton, and they suggested to him, how about Genesis chapter 1? And so Borman later wrote, there was an impression we wanted to transmit, our feelings of closeness to the creator of all things. This was Christmas Eve, December 24, 1968, and they handed Jim and Bill their lines from the Holy Scriptures. You ever hear of Charlie Duke? Charlie Duke was an astronaut, and uh, I think if I remember correctly, he holds the record for being the longest astronaut to have time on the surface of the moon. He produced a DVD titled, Walk on the Moon, Walk with the Sun, S-O-N, not S-U-N. He founded the Duke Ministry for Christ, where he works as a speaker, and was, of course, a believer in the Lord Jesus. Patrick Forrester, in August 2009, was the, on the Discovery crew. He took with him, this is very interesting to me, he took with him a piece of the battery box from Nate Saint's Piper plane, airplane that was destroyed by the, the uh, Wyodanis, what, the, what was then called the Alcas, and he brought with him, a, they were each allowed to take one book with them. What, the book he took with them was Jungle Pilot, the gripping story of the life and witness of Nate Saint, martyred missionary to Ecuador. He said that it was at a Stephen Curtis Chapman concert that he learned about Nate Saint and the other missionaries who had been martyred. Lieutenant Colonel Rex Walham, Took into outer space an article from Our Daily Bread, something that maybe some people here read every day. It was titled, Seeing God's Glory. Rick Husband and Michael Anderson, they were committed Christians. They attended the same community church. They were both on the space shuttle Columbia in February of 2003 when it disintegrated over Texas during reentry. All seven crew members died. U.S. Lieutenant Colonel Anderson was the payload commander. He told his minister just before leaving, if this thing doesn't come out right, don't worry about me. I'm just going on higher. U.S. Air Force Colonel Rick Husband was commander 
of the Space Shuttle Columbia. He was a close friend of Steve Green's. Rick told, Rick told Houston when they were in touch with him that the Lord has given us just a, a perfect day. And before they boarded that, actually before they went through the doors to meet the press and then to board the um, shuttle, Rick stopped the crew and he said, I want to pray with you before we leave. He bowed his head and prayed with them. Every morning they would wake up Rick's wife selected God of Wonders by Steve Green. And here is just a um, communication with Mission Control. We're almost done here. You're listening very patiently. Mission Control said, good morning. That song was for Rick. It was God of Wonders by Steve Green. Rick said, good morning. Thank you. We can really appreciate the lyrics of that song up here. We look out the window and see that God truly is a God of wonder. In an email sent from space by Rick to Steve Green, he wrote about how overwhelming it was to see God's vast creation from space. He said, I never cried before when I'm exercising, but he said, pedaling on the bike and looking out the window at God's incredible creation brought tears to my eyes. Before his death, this is what Rick said. I finally realized, and it became my desire, that I wanted to be the best man I could possibly be for God. That I could be the best husband that I could, that I could for Evelyn and be the best father that I could for my children and to do everything I can to make sure that they know about Jesus and hope that they come to a point in their lives where they ask him to be their savior. And I thought, if I could do that, and at the end of my life look back, that would be what really mattered to me, not whether or not I was an astronaut or anything else. So when that shuttle disintegrated, for Rick Husband and Michael Anderson, it was absent from the body and at home with the Lord. As President Ronald Reagan said about the seven brave astronauts when that Challenger exploded, they slipped the surly bands of Earth to touch the face of God. Just let me read you again some of the questions that we just went over. How can a person know he's going to heaven? And then coming back with the statement, nothing else matters now, I am ready. Listen again to the question of, uh, and the statements of Michael Anderson. He said he knew no matter what happened, he would be in heaven. Commander Rick Hudson saying he was going to heaven and meet his family there, and that is what really mattered. So I'm going to ask you to think with me about heaven. And I'm going to just ask and answer three vital questions about heaven. Here's the first one. Is it really possible? for you to go to heaven when you die. Is that really possible? As we sit here in the comfort of this building in Brookfield, Connecticut, somewhere in this world you're going to breathe your last breath and it will leave your lungs and you will be gone. Is it really possible that you could leave this world and step into the presence of the God of eternity and be in heaven. Is that possible? Many people like Dwight D David Eisenhower's mother think that heaven is only for a select few. Others insist you have to be a member of a certain church to qualify. Others say, well, if you're going to get to heaven, there's some rite or some ritual that is essential. You, you, I remember one Irishman telling me that he was talking to a man and the man was saying, I think you need to be baptized. I think if you're baptized, that washes away your sins and, and uh, that's how you get to heaven. And, and um, my friend, the Christian, said to him, well, look at the thief on the cross. The Lord Jesus forgave him. He wasn't baptized. You'll laugh at this man's response to just prove his point. He said, well, I, I wouldn't be surprised it was waning. 
wouldn't be surprised it was raining and that that counted for the baptism. Listen to me, my dear friend. There is nothing that's going to put away your sins but the blood of Christ. And what thrills any gospel preacher and strengthens my hand tonight is this. The will of God, the desire of God, is that you be saved and be in heaven when your life is done. You see, that fact is at the, at the heart of all of our gospel work. It's the assurance that anyone that we meet and everyone that we meet can become saved. That's why the Lord Jesus said to his disciples, go to Jerusalem, go to Judea, go to Samaria, go to the uttermost parts of the earth and take this message of forgiveness and salvation. So there's nobody I could meet. Nobody could come through the doors. Nobody I could ever speak to, preach to, shake hands with, or give a gospel paper to that is outside of this desire that God has. He wants you to be saved. He really wants the best for you. He wants you to be saved. I read uh, some time ago about um, a, a man who stole a vehicle, stole a car. The police were desperately searching for that man. You say, well, if he's a car thief, yes, they... No, 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 no. The owner of the car had gone into a hardware store and he had purchased some rat poison because of uh, rats that he had in his house and, and uh, he bought some poison and he had put it on some crackers that he left in a bag on the front seat and he told the police, we've got to find that man. If he eats those crackers, it will kill him. So here are the police feverishly searching for this man who has committed a crime. He's, of course, trying to elude them. And yet the whole motive that they have really is to, to, to get to him before he kills himself. So you may think somehow God is on your track and God is trying to arrest you and stop you and, and, and he's going to spoil your life and he's going to take control of it and, and you won't be your own boss. Well, you're not your own boss now. You're not in control now. Everybody, everybody in the world is controlled by one of two powers. They're either controlled by the devil and their own sin or they're controlled by God. God is trying to seek you, to rescue you, to deliver you, to liberate you, to bless you. That's his will. And you see, the cross of Christ is at the, at the heart of all of our gospel preaching. That we know that we will never meet a person that Jesus did not die for. He gave himself a ransom for all. He said, I didn't come to judge the world. I came to save it. He said in John chapter 3, God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. The vocabulary of gospel preaching is fairly well bursting with words that widen the scope to take in the world. Words like, if any man, whosoever will. It's taking you in tonight. Because when Christ died on the cross, he died to reconcile the world to God, to provide salvation for you. Do you really go to heaven when your life is done? That's God's will. That's why Christ died. And right now in the world, there is somebody who is working to bring you to Christ. We call him the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. He can speak to you and I can't. He can bring things to memory that were buried decades ago. If you want to hear a story about that, ask some of the Battertons about the 
the man in McKeesport who he thought that Harold Clark was visiting him in his uh, hospital room and preaching to him. And Tom said to him, he said, my dad's been gone for years. No, 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 he said. I, I heard him clear as a bell. And then this man who hadn't been in a Sunday school for decades started rattling off what he said Harold Clark said to him at the, at the foot of his hospital bed. No, 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 he, he, he was here. I heard him say the wages of sin is death, but the, hadn't been in the Sunday school for years. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. He said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I heard him say, by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's the, where was that coming from? Mr. Clark hadn't appeared in his bed. Mr. Clark is in heaven. The Spirit of God was bringing into his mind what he had heard as a boy in Sunday school. See, I can't do that. I was having meetings in a place once far from here. Uh, there was a family coming to the meetings. Their daughter, some time ago, had left to go away to college. But actually, going away was part of the package. Like it, She was getting away from the gospel. She was getting away from... Meetings, she was getting away from her parents, she was getting away from the Christians, she was going to be on her own, she was going to have a grand time, nobody was going to tell her what to do. So she went away to the big city. She was not long there before she realized it wasn't everything it was cracked up to be. And her life was miserable. And one day, after a class, her professor said to her, uh, would you mind staying behind when the others leave? Sure, sure, she said. So when others left, he came and sat down and he said, look, I, I'm going to ask you something. If this doesn't make sense, you, you, you know, you can tell me that you, it, you don't understand what I'm talking about, but you... You strike me as, this is her professor, you strike me as somebody who, who's having soul trouble. Would you know what that means? She said, what did you say? Well, he said, I, I, don't, I don't know if you've ever heard the term before, but you strike me as somebody who's having soul trouble. Which, do, you, do, you, do I know? Of course I know. Yeah, I grew up hearing that. Well, he said, I just have watched you the last few days. And he said, I, I was just... And the gospel that she had been trying to get away from, she sat there and listened to her professor tell it all over again. See? And trusted Christ in a very short time. Who can arrange something like that? The person who's trying to reach you. He's trying to speak to you. He's trying to reach your mind with thoughts. He's trying to turn you from your sins to the Lord Jesus. It's the Holy Spirit of God. And that, you see, my friend, that fact is at the heart of all of our praying for your soul. That we have the assurance. God can speak when we can. God can reach a person when they're far from us. And all of history reminds us that that's exactly why the Spirit of God is in the world. I hope he's reach, trying to reach you tonight. I hope you'll let him reach you and that you won't harden your heart against him. So, is it possible for you to go to heaven when life is done? That's God's desire. That's the purpose behind Calvary. 
That's the reason the Spirit of God is in the world, to bring you to that truth, that fact, that knowledge. Number two, is it possible for a person to be sure that he's going to heaven? Is it possible here to know where you're going to be when you die, to know that ahead of time? Such a hugely important issue. It, it, it certainly shouldn't rest on emotion or positive thinking or chance or, or luck or we'll wait and see what happens. And not when you're talking about eternity, not when you're talking about whether you will be everlastingly happy or endlessly miserable. You know, would, would you think I was stretching a point if I told you that most people spend more time planning a, a visit to Disney World than they do to eternity. They spend more time planning what rides we're going to go. Here's, here's, a, here's our logic. What, we're going to go deep into the park and we're going to hit this ride and this ride because they're the ones that are very busy and, and this is where we're staying and, and, and maps are checked, routes are checked, weather is checked. They're thinking about it weeks in advance. How much time have you given to thinking about eternity and about where you're going to be forever? Is it possible for you to be sure that you're going to heaven? That's going to involve three things. For a person to be certain that she or he will be in heaven, then there are, it involves three things. First of all, it involves this. A person must have his sins put away. Since sin is the one barrier to heaven, entrance is impossible unless those sins are removed. Now, this is something, if I said sinners overlook this, I, I would be too general. This is something that I overlooked. And maybe I, I could go so far as to say this is something that most Christians' children overlook. I, I worked away at what I thought God wanted me to do to be saved. See? When I approached salvation, I never thought about Christ. I'm embarrassed to tell you that, but I never thought about Christ. I always thought about me. And I tried to figure out what did God want me to do. And of course, the, the, the stone wall I was hitting was, I knew it had something to do with belief, but I already did believe. So I didn't know whether I, I made what could have been a fatal mistake of imagining that God wanted me to believe it stronger or harder or with my heart and not my head, whatever that means. And so I kept working away on what I was supposed to do and I never stopped to think about what Christ had done. If you're going to be in heaven, you need to have your sins put away. That's the thing that's standing between you and heaven, between you and happiness, between you and hope, between you and God. Your sins. And if a person is going to have the assurance that he's going to be in heaven, then he must have his sins put away. Are your sins washed away? Is there a moment in your life when your sins were washed away? If a person is going to be in heaven, as simple as this sounds, he has to have an invitation from God. After all, it's his heaven, isn't it? Adam had no assurance he was going to be in heaven some, at some point. So the wonderful thing is that God has opened up his home and wants you to come and spend eternity with him. And in fact, eventually, he wants to spend eternity with you in a new heaven and a new earth where sin will never enter. And so you have an invitation from God tonight. You. You. 
As if it came in your mailbox, as if a, a mailman slipped it in your door, as if you opened it up to see when the date was and, and, and you saw the RSVP card and, and you checked it all out. You have an invitation from God. He wants you to be in heaven when your life is done. And he's inviting you. And if a person is going to know now that he's going to be in heaven, please grasp this. He has to get that knowledge from God. The only reason I know I'm going to be in heaven is that this book tells me that. And if a person is going to know here and now that he's going to be in heaven there and then, then he must have his sins put away. There must be an invitation that he can accept. And he has to get the assurance of that from God. I think in Newington I mentioned, I thought it was very a very um, illustrative story but um, and I didn't intend to tell it so I don't have the details but uh, there was a woman who was going to be married it was it was a high society um, function and she knew her friend was a photographer and she asked her friend if she would do the uh, photos for the wedding and absolutely I'd be delighted and, and so the photographer took all the pictures see and then um, there was a picture to be taken at the base of a, of a huge flight of marble stairs leading up to the ballroom upstairs. And so she got, she got the bridal party and the guests that were supposed to be in it. She took the picture. Then they all went upstairs, see? Curved around to the front door. And there were men at the door checking off a list. Yes, yes, fine, you're on the list, go. Yes. And the photographer and her husband come to the door. And man says, and your name? And she gave her name. I don't see you on the list. She said, I'm the photographer. She said, my husband and I, we're close friends. And, oh, but I'm sorry, I don't see you on the list. What was your name again? She gave her name again. Now, over his shoulder, she could see the sculpted ice, see? The swan in the middle of the table. She could see the... Waiters moving around with the hors d'oeuvres. She could see the tables all set. And she's looking at this man and he's searching this, this list for a name. Oh, I'm sorry, he said, uh, your name isn't here. He summoned someone and they took the photographer and her husband down a hall onto a service elevator took her down to the basement where the parking lot was, opened the door and he said, good night. They stumbled to the car. As they're driving home, he turns to his wife and he said, didn't we get an invitation? Yes, she said, of course we got an invitation. But I was a photographer. I didn't think I had to return it. You have an invitation from God. If you don't take it, you'll never be in heaven. Because you need to get your name in that book. It's called the Lamb's Book of Life. And the wonderful thing is God wants you there. Now one more question. 
It's really more of a statement, isn't it, when he says this. President Eisenhower says, when you're dying, does anything else matter? When you're dying, does anything else matter? I'd like you to answer that. When a person's dying, does it really matter that the house is freshly painted? When a person's dying, is it really important that the grass is mowed? When a person's dying, is the fact that he got the roof repaired, got the oil changed, has new tires on the car, does any of that come to, into play when a person is on the brink of eternity, on the edge of eternity, on the precipice, that he's going out into eternity and he will never be back, does anything else matter except being saved? And since you and I do not know when we're going to be at that point, when we will be at that edge, wouldn't it be wise of you tonight to make sure that you're going to be in God's heaven? Because as President Eisenhower stated and asked, when you're dying, does anything else matter? See, you can miss something. And the thing that you get instead can be so close that it really doesn't matter. You, you, can, you, can, you can miss an appointment for some reason and get second best. And second best is so close to, to what you could have had that... There's minimal difference, but what we are talking about is heaven or hell. What we are talking about is either being in the presence of God forever or being in the lake of fire by yourself eternally. Some things where we make a mistake, they, 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 they affect the results, they quickly pass. But what we're talking about is something that is permanent, unchanging, everlasting, eternal, to be forever and forever. And forever. Either up there or down there. Now, I don't know anything else that should motivate you more than realizing that where you will be forever will be determined by what you do with this invitation from God, what you do with I was 13 years of age. No, 12. I had walked a block from my house. I mentioned the other night about walking to elementary school, so I was about a block from my house when I heard what sounded like firecrackers. So I looked down the street. It wasn't firecrackers. There was a woman on the pavement. She had her hand up as if her hand could could ward away the bullets. There was a man standing over her. He was holding the gun with two hands, not because he was a marksman, but because his hands were shaking. And he was standing over her, and he was pulling the trigger. You say, you must have been terrified, and you must have run and hid. And No. I was just stunned. I, I actually froze. I just stood there. Now, all he had to do was look up and look to his right. And he could have gotten rid of the only witness. And I'd be in eternity. 
didn't. He looked up where he lived across the street, strode across the street, up into his house, slammed the door shut, and I heard another gunshot. Then I watched her son come out of the house, fall at, at, at his mother's body, and, and talk to her as if she could hear, Mom, Mom! And then bolt across the street and hit that door like a fullback smashing into the door. And then that would be the start of, was it half a dozen subpoenas to come to court? And, and then you'd sit outside and then they'd come and say it was delayed, it was delayed. And they just delayed it long enough that the man died in prison. But I've thought so many times. I was as close to that man as I am to Mr. Batterton sitting on the, the, the back row tonight. And that close to being in eternity. I wonder how close you are to eternity. And if there's, a God, if there's a God who wants you to be with him, and a Savior who died to make it possible, and the Spirit of God working to, to awaken your mind, I, I, I'm going to leave with you the President's question just one more time. When you come to die, is there anything else that is more important? Is there anything else that will matter except this? The salvation of your soul for eternity. Shall we pray? Father, in the Savior's name,